This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Dual protests on Lock Street uh, yesterday causing uh, a lot of uh, police presence. Matter, and, and don't forget, we also had the Around the Bay Road race uh, yesterday morning as well. Uh, between Victoria Park and Lock Street and, of course, the around the bay, the police were quite uh, busy. And uh, by noon, of course, uh, the run had turned uh, the attention off the run and it turned more into uh, the attention on the protest groups. Uh, here is some chanting. That is the Hamilton anti-fascist group. Here's what a Deputy Police Chief Dan Kinsella had to say. We do have to be cognizant of it. We do have to uh, be vigilant. But I think there's also a broader message, and we were reaching out to uh, the organizers from both sides, uh, trying to communicate and, and find a better way to let them get their message across without this negative impact that uh, they're causing to our community. All right, let's bring in Andrea Horbath, leader of the Ontario NDP and, of course, organized uh, Love Lock Day a while back, of course, because this is her hood. And Andrea is with us now. Andrea, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So what was your take on what happened this weekend? How concerned were you going into the weekend? Well, I mean, I think a lot of uh, Hamiltonians were probably holding their breath, wondering what might happen. Uh, I mean, I think folks recognize that a a vibrant democracy requires uh, people to have the freedom of speech and the ability to peacefully protest. And, you know, it looks like both of those groups um, did exactly that. They peacefully protested and got their their voices heard. um, And I guess that's what uh, we expect. Uh, I'm glad that there was no violence. Um, You know, I congratulate the police on having a a presence and making sure they were proactive. Um, And I, I, I... You know, at the end of the day, I think we came out of the weekend uh, with, uh, you know, people's, you know, opinions and, and, uh, you know, democratic rights being upheld and uh, and no no harm and no violence, which uh, is a positive thing. What what is it about Lock Street? Why has Lock Street become uh, the center point for this, do you think? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting, and I I think it's uh, probably because the... uh, uh, you know, the the amount of attention that um, occurred when we had the you know the violence that took place a couple weekends ago uh, i think the that created a bit of um you know a bit of a ground zero if you would i mean i hate to use that term it's a yeah. terrible term considering where it comes from but um but that it, it's it's kind of become the epicenter of of this kind of discourse about you know about who's uh, uh who's gaining and who's not gaining uh by the um you know by the changes that are happening to our our city and our community um you know reminding folks, I guess, that uh, it takes all of us to build a strong community, and uh, uh, I think that's some of the message that was coming out on this past weekend, uh, but that certainly was the message on Love Lock that day, was all about that it takes all of us to, um, you know, to to make our communities vibrant and, and to make sure that we are, you know, that we are, um, we're Remembering that everyone needs to be a, a part of a of a growing city, we can't leave anybody behind. How is the street uh, residents, merchants, uh, all of them? How are they reacting to this attention? Well, I mean, I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's in some ways positive. I mean, you know, what's that saying? Um, yeah. uh, no media is bad media, or something like that, right? No headlines. Well, and, and and I guess in the end, it means good outweighs bad. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully, good outweighs bad. But uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting because Lock Street has been um, kind of a unique 
space in our city for a very long time. I mean, certainly it's uh, it's very, very vibrant now, but it's not that it hasn't been vibrant yeah. over the last number of years, right? I mean, so um, it's not newly kind of... Um, "Quote unquote gentrified, if you will. It, it's been it's been changing for a long. Remember, it was used to be all antique shops, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. then they went to Ottawa Street mostly. I mean, there's still a few there, um, and now they're now uh, Ottawa Street's becoming quite vibrant, which is a good thing. Uh, it seems, to, meaning the protesters seem to be a very small group of people. Uh, I, I think a lot people. I think a lot of people were concerned that this might be bigger than it actually was this past weekend." Yeah, I mean, I think that's why some, I mean, I certainly got a sense that there was, um, you know, a collective holding of our breath as a city. Um, but yeah, I mean, the numbers weren't huge, that's for sure. Uh, but, you know, but as we saw from that night, that Saturday night of, uh, of breaking of windows and throwing of rocks, it doesn't take a lot of people to do a lot of damage. I mean, there were, what, 20 to 30 people at, at, at that time, and they did a lot of damage, and they created a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of intimidation. So, you know, it, it's kind of, in some ways, it's good that there were probably 10 times as many, even though it was only, you know, 100 or so, uh, 10 times as many, but there was no violence. You know, there was, and I think that, you know, I think that if there's one thing that we can settle on is that regardless of who these folks were in the protests or how many they were, I think they all recognized that part of their, you know, part of their right to protest peacefully uh, also comes with it a responsibility uh, to, um, you know, to the rest of the community uh, to, to not cause damage or fear. It's unfortunate we had to see masks being worn through all of this. Yeah, I noticed that too. I was uh, I was surprised by that too. And um, and again, it's uh, I guess it's people's right to demonstrate how they how they wish to. Um, you know, yeah, the masks kind of they put people off a little bit. I think yeah, they yeah. you know they put I think people you lo- off a little bit. You lose credibility and support for people who may be sympathy uh, sympathetic to your cause, don't you think? I'm sorry. I said it appears that, you know, once you, you, you take that route, that anybody who may have had sympathy for that cause is questioning it. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not so sure. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it, this is a very um, complex, I think, uh, you know, political dialogue or public dialogue that we're having. Um, and I don't know that we need to, you know, necessarily jump to conclusions as to what the mo- motivations are of folks. Um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of folks who are, um, you know, they cover their face because they don't think that their skin color should matter. Uh, and so you cover up your face because it doesn't matter if you're black or white or... Yeah, but that's uh, a bit of a stretch here, Andrea. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know, Scott. That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't know if that's what it is or it isn't. I mean, maybe that's what yeah. some people are, 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 um, are expressing. And again, I, and this is just it. I don't know, mm. and, and nor do you. And so each of these uh, folks that get involved in these things, have, uh, they come from it from their own perspective and their own, um, you know, their own you know, analysis, I guess. And, and, I mean, the most important thing, I think, though, is that, uh, is that um, you know, that there wasn't violence and that people were able to peacefully protest and, uh, and say their piece. And, again, I don't think that hurts our democracy whatsoever. Uh, did merchants, have you talked to any? Did they see an uptick this weekend or did people stay away? Um, actually, I haven't had a chance because, unfortunately, I had a family emergency this weekend, and so I spent much of my focus with that. So I mm. haven't had a chance, and hopefully I can get over there sometime today, and then I'm heading back to Toronto. All right, Andrea Horvath has been with us, leader of the Ontario NDP. Andrea, we'll have you on again uh, real soon to talk about the upcoming election as well. You take care. Thanks so much, you too, Scott. Thank Bye-bye. you. Uh, all right, let's bring in Erica Vella, digital broadcast journalist, Global News, who was, uh, of course, covering this over the weekend. Erica, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, was this, did this turn out to be a lot less than what you thought it might be? Truthfully, Scott, when I went into it, I wasn't sure what it was going to be. I remember um, when we spoke about it in the morning, we were heading out to Hamilton, and when we first got there um, to the protest, there was only three or four people there, so we weren't sure really what was happening, how big the turnout was going to be. But I, I have to say I was actually pretty surprised with the, the amount of people that uh, ended up showing up and sort of the manner and, and sort of the, the anger that was really uh, fueling this protest. So what was your take? What did you see? So uh, we got there, and uh, this we a lot of people obviously joined this counter protest. So this was the Hamilton against fascism. So we got there. A lot of the uh, people who were participating again, uh, they were wearing um, masks. They were covering their faces with these uh, red sort of handkerchiefs. Um, and I approached one of them, um, and he spoke with us, and, and he kind of explained um, they were arranging this as a counter protest to another protest that was happening on Locke Street. Um, a march more so, it's, and it was called the Patriot Walk on Lock. And um, they were accusing the people who were participating in that initial protest of being alt-right, anti-immigration, uh, anti um, and, you know, sharing sort of xenophobic um, remarks about uh, that that's sort of their ideology. So they wanted to hold this um, protest, their own counter-protest, to sort of say this is not welcomed here in Hamilton. So um, we got there, and it, the march started, um, and it was kind of funny because it was, there was two sort of separate groups there. There was the um, Hamilton against fascism on one side of the street, and on the other side of the street there were some labor groups as well as just Hamiltonians that wanted to kind of come check it out and, and support the cause, just to sort of spread this um, message of, of support uh, for the community. But once the march started, things got really heated, and I found a lot of the anger was directed to uh, many uh, officers who were there to sort of make sure everything was kept in order. Why were, uh, was it both sides angry with police? What, 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 why were they angry with police? They were just, um, they were sort of accusing officers of, uh, you know, being um, racist, and they were preventing them from sort of approaching the other protester or the other group, and they were, uh, you know, going with a lot of the uh, of that sort of narrative that, you know, there's a lot of racism and discrimination in the police force, this uh, military-style police force that's being run. And um, basically, they were just accusing them and chanting and, and saying that they were stopping them from kind of, uh, you know, free speech and all that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, the police obviously doing their best to keep the two sides apart. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. I think there were some... Um, there were some opportunities where they were marching up and down Main Street and um, the group that we were following, the counter-protest, tried to uh, go down Lock Street mm. and the police officers really just, they blocked everything off. And then there was a, it looked like at times like a little bit of a physical altercation between some of the um, protesters as well as police just trying to, you know, block off that street to keep everything separate and keep everything safe. And when I spoke with um, the deputy chief uh, later in the afternoon, he said the first protest, actually, the, the Patriots Walk on Log, was very small, uh, small it, it, short in duration, and it was um, very peaceful. But it was this second protest, this counter-protest, that actually sort of was borderline, was really crossing that sort of um, line between being safe and, and not. And they were very antagonizing. They were really pushing the police um, and being very confrontational. 
Uh, how did it all end? Did it come to a peak? Was there something? And then, it, like, what, what happened? How did it all end? Well, it came to an end. So after the march was done, they went to the main park, Victoria Park, I believe it's called. Um, They went to that main park, and there were actually some people from that Patriot uh, Walk on Lock, uh, Patriots Walk on Lock, that came and met um, members of the counter-protest there. And there was some heated discussions, lots of words kind of thrown at each other, a lot of arguments. But for the most part, there were, well, we spoke to police again, and they said there was no injuries, there were no arrests made, and really it was just a lot of heated um, verbal confrontation. So lots of police presence, and uh, it looks like no arrests, no problems at all as far as injuries or anything. Lots of police presence. I was very surprised. When I first got there, I, I thought it was almost one for every protester. There was a, an officer, so it was a, mm. it was there was a very heavy police presence. And they, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but they brought in officers from Waterloo uh, Regional Police, and there were members of um, Toronto Police Service, the Mounted uh, Police. So there was a lot of backup. There was a lot happening in Hamilton yesterday, and they just wanted to make sure that um, they had enough members of uh, the police force there to kind of make sure, to keep the peace, to make sure everything was well taken care of. Were there any speeches or presentations or anything of that order, or just a a march and a lot of people yelling? It was, it seemed, it was not very formal in that sense. Um, It was very much just a march and a lot of, there was nothing formal set up. Nobody really, um, there was some people using the megaphones to speak, but it wasn't uh, anything sort of set up in a, in a, time sort of sense. So how did it all peter out? How did it come to an end? It came to an end. I, it, when they all met into the park thing, people just started dissipating. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, once the, the heated confrontation ended, um, a lot of it, everybody kind of went their separate ways. Police were there monitoring the whole time. But, uh, yeah, it just kind of fizzled out as um, after a couple of hours, though, of uh, marching and, and being in that Victoria Park Square. So, Erica, as you're driving home and you're thinking about all this, what's the, what, are you, what are your thoughts on this day? What is the impact? What's, what's your take on it? Well, I think it was two very two groups um, on opposite sides of uh, ideology, and they were just you know using the opportunity to kind of clash. And when we were speaking with some Hamiltonians that were just kind of watching, they they thought that this was just a, an opportunity for them to kind of spread their message, and it really didn't. Um, contribute to any sort of greater good or any sort of uh, message of positivity. So, um, yeah, these two, these two groups obviously ha- are passionate about their own ideals, but it's not necessarily reflective of all of Hamilton. So when they're going around, you know, you know causing confrontations, um, angry, and a lot of this anger, again, being directed at police, it's, it's not really a, a positive sort of um, place to be able to share those thoughts. And a lot of people weren't necessarily um, wanting to listen because it just it just was very confrontational, as I said. Erica Vella was has been with us, digital broadcast journalist, Global News, and of course covering uh, the protests on Lock Street yesterday. Erica, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. The new Ipsos poll says the public has slowly been losing faith in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Sean Simpson is with us, Vice President Ipsos Public Affairs, and on the line with us now. Sean, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. How do you explain a dip in popularity, especially considering the length of the honeymoon this government had? 
yeah, you know, for the better part of uh, two years, or even two and a half years, the uh, Trudeau liberals have been riding high. Approval ratings have been strong. Uh, and uh, it's really been just in the last three months that we've started to see a really precipitous decline in their uh, in their figures to the point where now 60% think it's time for another party to take over. And I think the main uh, catalyst that we can all point to is India, where it revealed a little bit that the emperor was wearing no clothes. So, and the ones that he was wearing were really not, you know. Anyway, uh, is why what, why was India such a tipping point? Was it a tipping point? Was it a straw that broke the camel's back? Um, why did that resonate? Yeah, I think it was a bit of a tipping point. Um, when the when the Liberals, when in Trudeau, when they were first elected, um, the majority of Canadians, even at that point, believed that uh, he was more style than substance. But that was okay, because after a decade of Harker, people wanted a change in style, and that, that's what they got. The trouble is, is that the thing that, that causes you to like someone at first, um, is often what causes you to dislike them subsequently. And so uh, when his style became a liability instead of an asset, people started to wonder, okay, so if he doesn't have the style, and we didn't really think he was much substance to begin with, what's left? And that's where we find ourselves now. Uh, Many uh, remember the old campaign with the Conservatives, he's just not ready, he's just Mm. not ready. Then clearly uh, Canadians decided that he was. Has he learned anything in this role? Has he matured a lot? Many said that there wasn't a lot there when he started, but we're willing to give him uh, the benefit of the doubt and the team behind him and such. Has he grown in the position at all? Well, I think that uh, in the last three months, he probably has, uh, as as uh, polls like ours begin to to humble him a little bit, I would think. Um, and now there's a bit of soul-searching, saying, okay, so our initial message and style is no longer resonating. Uh, some of our core constituencies, such as, as women, uh, such as millennials, and uh, the province of Ontario have turned against us. What do we need to do? And I would uh, suggest that that uh, what they do need to to focus on is those issues that matter the most to Canadians, like the economy and jobs and health care and infrastructure, and a little less time on things that are of uh, importance to fewer people, such as gender pronouns. Interesting you should say that, because what I've started to notice and I've heard from experts uh, such as yourself over the last three to six months is that this has become a gender campaign, uh, that it's not a case of, of, of you know, trying to uh, project certain ideologies or such, but now it's been separated by gender. Uh, you know, the self-proclaimed feminist prime minister, uh, gender equality within the cabinet. What is happening to the women here? Because that it, it looked for it looked like a while for like three months. That's exactly who he was trying to target. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately for the Liberals, they're losing by 10 points among men and by 5 points among women. So if this is being fought on a gender basis and you're losing both genders, then I think you need to quickly figure out something to fight the battle on. Um, you know, there's, there's um, uh, uh, it, it, as we say, it's a tipping point. Something's happened here where some of the very firm and solid leads that they had among some of those groups they could really count on, such as, as women and millennials, and they, they also been targeting the middle class, but they're behind the conservatives among every income category, whether it's those with a household income of under 40000 or those with an income of over 100000 They're losing among every bracket.
You talked about the middle class. It seemed during the last election cl- uh, campaign, that's all we heard of. Everybody was just catering to the middle class. The middle class was, you know, or, or perhaps maybe everybody to join the middle class is maybe a more accurate way of stating it. But in that attempt, they have seemed to ignore the middle class. How odd is it that the middle class is the most disgruntled here, considering that was the catchphrase of the last election? Well, we know that everybody talks about the middle class, and the reason they do that is because in Canada, 90% of people consider themselves to be middle class. You know, it's, 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 it's not like over in the UK where class is really important and, 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 and people are sort of self-aware of, of where they fit. In Canada, we're all middle class. We all think we're middle class. And so it's just a, uh, almost a marketing uh, tool or rhetoric to try to appeal to the broadest, uh, broadest base. But what we're finding here is that you know, regardless of how you slice the data, whether it's people with kids, whether it's people without kids, income, etc., the, the liberals are losing among all of them. The only two groups where they have a lead is among um, millennials, and it's only two points over the NDP, so it's virtually a tie. And then the only other group is those with a university degree. So they're still leading among the elites. But among, you know, average Joe uh, person, uh, the conservatives are now uh, well ahead. Uh, is that the problem with you know, all this chatter about the middle class, is that people now view Trudeau as an elite? Oh, I, th- I think so. You know, it, it only, only elites are, are concerned about some of the things that the government has concerned themselves with. Uh, and it's not to say that they're, uh, the issue in and of itself is not important. It's just not as important to a, a wide variety uh, and as many Canadians as these bread and butter issues like the economy, creating jobs, people are worried about their retirements, there's roads to be fixed, there's health care to be improved, there's education, uh, you know, classrooms to be built. Uh, and we're talking about sort of strange things, um, peacekeeping missions and service uh, Service Canada and how they're going to address people on the phone. It's like uh, it, 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 people are getting the sense that the government's priorities are not lined up with their own, and we're seeing that play out now in, uh, in the vote support. How can the Liberals be so out of touch with this? And again, I mean, uh, I believe it was Ipsos that did a poll just a few weeks ago that said what the priorities were of Ontarians heading into the provincial election, and as you mentioned, it was healthcare, jobs in the economy, lower energy costs, lower taxes, education. Uh, and instead, we're talking about, uh, as you mentioned, m- more social issues. It seems to be happening with the feds as well. Are the Wynn Liberals dragging Trudeau down? Oh, I, well, in Ontario, uh, the federal uh, liberals are getting crushed. Uh, they're 16 points behind the Conservatives uh, and tied with the NDP. Uh, and the Conservatives would do very well in in a federal election in Ontario right now, as they would in a, in a provincial election. So both both the, the federal liberals and the provincial liberals are, are suffering from uh, sort of the same ailment, which is talking about things that aren't important to people. Um, and and uh, they would do well to um, refocus and realign their their priorities to match those things that really matter to people. Will we see the Prime Minister separate himself from the politics in Ontario? And we've often heard that uh, the Prime Minister has taken a lot of key staffers from the Wynn government. Will he think twice about that or by implementing her plans, considering yeah. how unpopular she is here? 
Yeah, well, he'll have to certainly uh, be watching the, the polls for the Ontario election to, to determine that. Uh, maybe they, they think there's strength in numbers, although with uh, Trudeau's popularity now waning in Ontario, it actually may be uh, Premier Wynne who decides she doesn't want him to tag along with her campaign. Uh, you know, I think the, 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 the problem right now in Ontario is the Liberal brand, regardless of who uh, who, who is leading it. It's struggling right now, and uh, uh, now there's still time uh, for both uh, both incumbent Liberal governments to, to right the ship, but but for the, the provincial one, of course, time's running out. The election is two months away. How do you explain the loss uh, of attraction of women to this, especially when that seemed to be the key target? Well, I think that uh, that women are more than 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 men. When we look at the issues that are more important to them, it tends to be the softer issues, uh, such as uh, uh, you know social equality and uh, education and the environment, uh, as opposed to you know jobs and the economy and and healthcare. And and they're more in tune with style. Than, than, uh, than substance in many cases. And so when style then becomes the, the problem, they're probably... So why don't they like his style now? Well, I mean, when, <laughs> when, when your prime minister goes from uh, an international celebrity to an international laughingstock, because the papers globally covered the India trip, uh, you begin to, to think twice about what's, what's going on, and you start to change your mind about it. Sean, what about the rest of the world? Because the rest of the world loves Trudeau. We know and probably more than, than Canada does. At what point does that resonate with Canadians? Well, I think that uh, for a time, Canadians were taking pride in the fact that Trudeau was uh, well-loved around the country, and we were seeing those headlines and hearing those headlines, and uh, if everybody else likes him, why shouldn't we? But I think that narrative has, has started to change, and we're seeing now articles in the New York Times and overseas in the UK and elsewhere that suggest uh, that maybe the international uh, you know, love-in with our Prime Minister is starting to subside, and that then has an has an impact here in Canada. How does he go, the Prime Minister, from people kind to writing this ship? Yeah, well, uh, I would say probably uh, knock it off with uh, with with references like that, and to start talking about those those things that matter to people. Get back on to talking about the economy and how we're going to keep inflation down, and and you know how how we're going to keep jobs growing because the market just tanked five percentage points last week. So there's probably an awful lot of people uh, who are worried about their retirement. Um, and, and really talk about those bread and butter issues that resonate with, with the average person. Sean Simpson has been with us, Vice President, Ipsos Public Affairs. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Let's bring in Nor El Qadri, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. Nor, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, uh, Scott, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. And you, uh, how do you explain the dip, especially after the long extended honeymoon period of this government? Uh, indeed, it was a long extended uh, honeymoon, but uh, people were so hopeful that uh, Mr. Trudeau is going to change uh, politics uh, after what we have uh, seen a break in politics uh, of politics. Almost every everything that is uh, Mr. Harper that Mr. Harper has done, and with those hopes, they gave they gave him a a, a rain check on a lot of things that uh, he could he could fix 
um, the economy. He, he could manage the budgets. He, he would work on uh, uh, on aspects of democratic reform. In, uh, that he would fight uh, corruption. That he wouldn't have control in the in the prime minister's office as uh, the way it was with Mr. Harper. And then we have seen things go in, in the opposite direction. We we haven't seen uh, much improvement with uh, with this government. It was all talk, all talk. Um, we have seen some improvements only on uh, on the jobs and economy, which is a very important thing. But much of that goes to the provincial governments who have been uh, working very hard in that. Uh, we we see that in Alberta. We see that in uh, in Ontario. We've seen it in in multiple places. Not to dismiss the federal government's role, role, but uh, in 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 fact the. Uh, the visit to India and uh, all the much hype that we have seen after uh, after that visit uh, was uh, kind of the, the straw that broke uh, broke the camel's camel's back, and that was uh, uh, the, the biggest thing that has pushed the Liberals down over the last uh, couple of weeks. It seems, Nor, that the federal Liberals are running into the same problem that the provincial Liberals have here, in the sense that. Uh, their priorities do not seem to be the same as uh, Ontarians or Canadians' priorities. Uh, where where did the Prime Minister go off track here, or was he ever on track, By and we were just more interested in social issues at the time of his election and just feeling good? Well, uh, you are completely right in this. There is a huge misalignment. Uh, we have seen people... Uh, thinking of the promises that the prime minister has uh, has done, and they wanted to see action on uh, on those promises. We've seen um, them backing down on the, uh, backing out on that issue, those issues of democratic reform. Uh, and um, people are watching these things. We've seen the, the many scandals. Uh, uh, whether it was the prime minister Bonabar uh, Khan. Uh, uh, the trip, and that was kind of a, a huge uh, issue. Uh, we've seen the, the Minister of Finance in, in that big saga um, uh, on uh, on issues with his company, member uh, on mm. uh, We've seen um, his like, uh, senior staff, uh, the chief of staff and principal secretary on taking money from uh, from the prime minister's office big monies for movements from uh, for moving from toronto to, to ottawa so those are things that have built up over over the years and nowadays I'm, I'm, i speak to people who have been liberals over their life and they say okay, well we're not happy with uh, with what's happening with uh, with the liberals and they they're thinking and those who are more left leaning they're thinking ndp and those that are more right leaning they're thinking conservatives it seems that after uh, uh, the last address to Canadians on all of this, that it was more a, fe- a feeling than it was a policy that, that, that you know, we're, we're doing things more socially to make us feel better than we are to, as far as fiscally and policy wise to actually move the country forward. Is that accurate? It has some accuracy because a lot of people thought that the fact that he wanted to bring a gender balanced, for instance, uh, cabinet uh, was a great thing. But uh, um, you don't do that on uh, the backs of the experienced people. Uh, he has many people who are experienced that are backbenchers now. Yeah. 
Uh, they've had lots of experience in public, uh, private life, and in in politics. And then they are sitting on the back benches while we have we see lots of junior impl- uh, people who are sitting as ministers that they are learning on the job. So the. Uh, you can't uh, run the cabinet uh, this way. You can have few junior people, but you, you can't have too many of them, and he has too many of them in uh, in cabinet. So that's... Uh, it seems, uh, though, in the last uh, few months and last couple of months, though, that it's really turned towards gender politics. Uh, a feminist, a prime minister, as you said, equality within the cabinet. Um, and, you know, as opposed to ideology, it was as if he was specifically going after women voters. How do you explain the opposite happening in, in the, the, the decline in women numbers of support at this point? Um, at the end, um, women are, uh, are they're subtle, they're brilliant, they, they know what's going on, and um, they want uh, qualified women in place that are going to do the job. Uh, they want people who, uh, if he brought some CEO women and put them as, prime minister, as, as ministers, that's great. But to put the credible women in your uh, um, in your caucus on the back bench and bring forward just beautiful faces with with minimal experience to put them uh, uh, in cabinet just to say, okay, well, we look nice and we we're we're good and we're presentable. That's uh, the key thing. The second thing is that some of those women, they came into uh, and they have proven their inefficacy on some of the files because of the government policy. We've seen Maria Monsa, for instance, standing up and defending things about democratic reform that everybody was opposed to. Uh, even members of the caucus that I've spoken to privately, that they are telling me all, and we don't think this is the way that should be going, but this is what's coming from the prime minister's office. That's one thing. You've seen Bardi Shagar, for instance, that um, come and then just to fill in for the prime minister and answer the same question over and over and over again uh, about issues of fundraising with ministers or access to ministers or about the trip of uh, the prime minister to uh, that was covered by the Khan. So uh, he didn't have those like, very strong policy-oriented women uh, to lead the charge on uh, on many of the files. So the women that are out in the public there, they, they're saying, okay, well, we want empowerment of women. We want strong women to uh, to lead. Uh, they would love to see a man minister who is probably a feminist and a strong policy guy doing the work rather than having uh, weak women ministers who are just in there to fill, uh, to fill a spot. Nor Al-Khadri has been with us, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. Nor, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. As if we didn't get enough of this, uh, it wasn't that long ago that, uh, oddly enough, it was Anderson Cooper as well, interviewing Playboy model Karen McDougal uh, and her talking about a 10-month-long relationship uh, with Donald Trump that started in 2006. Now Stormy Daniels telling her interview on 60 Minutes, again with uh, Anderson Cooper, uh, and what I find fascinating with all of this is that these women are in lawsuits trying to, uh, I guess, sue for the ability to tell their story and yet are telling the story anyway. Uh, here's a couple of clips. Uh, first, let's hear one from the actual interview. After you had sex, what happened? 
he said that it was great. He had a, a great evening, and it was nothing like he expected that I really surprised him, that a lot of people must underestimate me, uh, that he hoped that I would be willing to see him again and that we would discuss the things that we had talked about earlier in the evening. Being on The Apprentice. Right. All right, uh, whatever that means. Uh, here's two clips from the lawyer of Stormy Daniels. It had to have come from someone associated with Mr. Trump. There's no other place for it to have come from. It didn't come from the magazine. That makes no sense. It certainly didn't come from my client. There's only one other place that it could have come from. And that threat was terrifying to my client. Our position is the NDA was never executed, and therefore it was invalid for a whole host of reasons, and we're confident that a court's going to find that. All right, let's bring in Megan Bowler, Professional Department of Social Justice Education, Ontario Institute for the Study in Education, University of Toronto, and with us now. Megan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Sure thing. So, uh, um, wow, where do you start with this? Um, These women, these two women are suing to be able to tell their story. What kind of position are they putting themselves in by going on TV and telling their story anyway? really important, of course, and as we've seen in the wake of the Me Too movement, that women are speaking up about their stories of whether it's sexual harassment or um, power having been used to get them to comply with sexual um, wishes from people abusing their power. So it's a very important uh, moment in terms of women speaking up and having the courage to tell their story because our climate has changed and really quite remarkably we are in a position of uh, women being believed for speaking up and so that's really what's uh, significant here. Are they not concerned that because they are doing what they were not supposed to do as far as these gag orders are concerned that they're opening themselves up for uh, for legal action or is the Me Too movement so strong that that would never happen? Well, of course, in in this instance, Stormy Daniels disassociates herself from the Me Too movement and claims she is in no way a victim. But I think when we take... um take the long view and look at the big picture, what we see is that in uh, in a patriarchal society and in what many people call a rape culture, one of the major ways that women have power in our society is through um, their their sexual um, their sexual power. And so we see that in this instance, uh, she in particular wanted uh, or he Trump had promised, to bring her onto the apprentice and um, and and more or less made an agreement that um, having sex might might get to that right and when she saw that that wasn't going to happen she um, she didn't continue that relationship but it's really significant that she's speaking up and also regarding those non disclosure uh, non disclosure statements that's a really interesting political. Uh, political trap, in a sense, because um, as we know, many, many women have been forced to sign non-disclosure when they have reported sexual harassment, and that's essentially a gag order. So people Mm. might look at this and say, oh, well, so-and-so's gotten, this woman has gotten paid off um, in in exchange for... um, She's brought up this story, and instead she's been paid a certain amount of money to keep silence. Well, in many instances, women have been forced to sign those non-disclosure rather than going public. So there hasn't always been a choice for women. Mm. And that's what's significant about the Me Too movement. So uh, getting back to my original question, do both these women open themselves up to legal challenges because they've done what they've done so far? 
Well, we are certainly in a wait-and-see situation. It mm. looks like they were willing to open themselves up to those legal challenges because they wanted to um, to share this information about what, in fact, happened with Trump. And, of course, in the case of Stormy Daniels, the fact that, the, that Trump and the lawyers are essentially seeking to silence her, that's really what's working against them at this point, you know, that this... Um, this desire to silence a woman who's spoken up is uh, is really the sort of the smoking gun, right? I mm. mean, why would you silence somebody if there wasn't truth to what they were saying, yeah? Do you think we would have got here without the Me Too movement? Do you think we'd even be talking about this with without the movement that uh, that came ahead of it? I feel certain that the Me Too movement has granted a new legitimacy to women's voices. So, of course, when we're looking at, at this question of political, uh, high political people with power, having affairs, this is a very commonplace, right? And especially having an affair prior to being in office, um, you know, that's, it's not essentially that unusual. However, uh, without the Me Too movement, we would not have seen this really radical change in cultural um, belief and acceptance of women's stories. And I think the, the thing that we really want to hope for is that women who don't have such a high public profile will be able to speak up. So women, um, yeah, who are not in, uh, in the spotlight, women who are not in Hollywood, all of the women in their day-to-day lives are able to speak up and have some uh, some appeal and some recourse given the abuse and violence and rape and harassment that they are experiencing. I'll play devil's advocate here, Megan. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those that said, you know, nothing new here. If you look back to the JFK days, this happened all the time. What's different here? Well, what's what's as I just said, it, in in many senses, it's not different. Uh, politicians have been having affairs for time immemorial. I think what's really important in the instance with Trump is that we perhaps shift our attention back to 20, um, 2016 when the other videotapes uh, that quoted, that, that showed Trump saying he likes to grab women's private parts and that he enjoys doing that and he recommends to other men how to do that, that those kinds of um, it, apparently acceptable to the public uh, forms of harassment on the part of Trump that uh, we really didn't, how far did that story go? It quickly got overshadowed, in fact, one could argue, by the Trump campaign and uh, other things that were happening at that time to shift the attention back to Hillary's emails instead of staying on the question of Trump's uh, abuse of power with women and his consistent sexual harassment of women, even to this day. Why does this matter to America now? Why does this matter to America? Because we are at a we are at a real crisis and tipping point in terms of the ethics and morality of politicians. As much as we have always had to miss, you know, hold um, hold politicians with some level of mistrust, I think what we are seeing is that. Um, we now don't know what information to trust. We don't know what politicians' motives are. Uh, we don't know what this holds for the future. So it's a question of figuring out new forms of accountability and new ways to ensure that ethical and moral standards are, are held by those we elect to office. Uh, we've certainly We've certainly seen this take people down in the entertainment industry. Why not Trump? Trump is such an interesting... Uh, uh, 
example in this way. As uh, in my own research, I've I've noticed that nothing seems to stick to Trump. It's like he's somehow made of Teflon and has been able to make so many things go away. So for those of us who have wanted there to be some measure of accountability for Trump, certainly we can hope that this question about his ethics in relation to um, how he behaves with women, his the records of his sexual harassment and, uh, and abuse, and, and some might even say, um, you know, participating in, in um, uh, you know, acts of, of rape at various junctures, that this might be of actual concern to the public and to other public officials who want there to be accountability in terms of who we have uh, elected or not elected in this case to uh, represent. How do you think Donald Trump will respond to all of this? He's been relatively quiet to this point, uh, certainly up to this weekend. And, and obviously before this, there was um, also the Playboy, a former Playboy model, uh, Karen McDougal, who apparently had a 10-month relationship with Fair, uh, with uh, a 10-month-long affair with Trump. Um, how do you think this is going to play out? Will people just, will, will this just die by the, fall by the wayside like other news stories? Or do you think this is traction? Well, we what, one thing that we might see is more women coming forward and um, testifying about um, how how Trump has um, has essentially harassed or interacted with them. So we may see more high profile cases, and uh, that that could lend a lot of credence to this. Um, at the same time, it's it's very curious that he's remaining silent about this, though the fact that. Uh, the lawyers, um, Trump's lawyers, have been involved, and that they are trying to, um, uh, you know, in the case of Stormy Daniels, ask her to remain silent given the payment that was made. Um, these raise real questions about his involvement in her silencing and whether or not, um, you know, there's a kind of whistleblowing happening in terms of those non-disclosure agreements. Women should not be forced to sign non-disclosure when they have these kinds of experiences at the hands of men. Uh, what would you say to those that would say, none of this is any of our business, what someone does in their personal life is up to them, we got to stay out of the bedrooms of the country? Well, that's just absolutely not the case. I mean, we saw the videotape in 2016 uh, of, of Trump boasting about how he likes to grab women. Um, and in 2018, clearly, this is not acceptable anymore from those that are elected to represent the country. This kind of um, uh, denigration of women, his um, consistent expressions of misogyny and hatred towards women, uh, towards his own family, it's all highly questionable. And my hope is that it, it opens the eyes of um, of those who perhaps did vote for him and and believed that he had some form of integrity, and perhaps we can see through that today. So, Megan, does this say more about the Me Too movement than it does uh, about Trump? Is it, is it really about Trump, or is this just continuing momentum for the Me Too movement? Oh, I think it's absolutely about both, and that what we see in the political arena is the way in which these different narratives will suddenly intersect. So right now it's a perfect storm of both Trump's absolutely um, inappropriate and abusive and harassing behavior and uh, hatred towards women uh, uh, coming into uh, the spotlight alongside the coincidence of the Me Too movement. But even as I was watching the Me Too movement evolve, I kept wondering why 
there weren't allegations towards Trump coming forward in those testimonies. So it does make sense that um, that this would come forward now. But as as I noted before, Stormy Daniels is distancing herself from the Me Too movement. She is saying, I am not a victim. But again, although individual women can say they're not a victim, if we take a bird's eye view, we can see that in a culture that doesn't value women, that pays women less, that doesn't give women the same opportunities, using our, our sexual... Um, our sexual powers is often our way of moving through the world. It's women's way of moving through the world. So Stormy Daniels was using the um, resources she had to, in this case, to get into uh, into the apprentice and to get forward in her career. So it's, uh, in a sense, she is a victim in the sense that all women are essentially victims in a patriarchal culture. Many wondered for different reasons than this issue when Donald Trump was elected, if this was a new generation of politician that we were going to see, um, you, you know, if it was more uh, about populist politics uh, than it was uh, about policy. Uh, and, and many wondered if, if, the, if we were going to see more Donald Trump type characters moving forward. Do you think that will be the case or do you think the pendulum swinging back and we'll see uh, an alternative, a real alternative this time. I think, time. A, you know, a real concern for for many is the rise of the extreme right around the world. And I think while there is a populist element to, to Trump's politics, there's also um, very strong ties to right-wing ideologies, to um, even to white supremacy, of, as we've seen in various ways. So the fact that... Uh, the is right- it always extreme right or is it extreme left too? And I'm just saying this as the city of Hamilton who've just experienced a, a, you know, a protest from the extreme left that ended up in violence. So is it really about extremes or is it the left or the right? Uh, my focus here is the extreme right, because as we saw even in the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, it is the extreme right that is often using these highly questionable uh, tactics and, and breaches to further political interests. And of course, this happens on all sides of the political spectrum. But right now, what is in focus is the very questionable political strategies and tactics and breaches of ethics being used by the extreme right and the rise of this kind of ideology as a prevailing ideology around the globe. It's a very, very concerning, and it is um, dislocating many people. I mean, the number of people who are being deported out of the United States right now that our headlines are not always reflecting is just outrageous. I mean, it's an extreme uh, change. I, I'm originally from the States, and, uh, you know, I'm proud to be part of a country that claimed to um, bring in uh, immigrants and create a land for everyone, and that is not what's happening now under Trump's jurisdiction. Megan, where do you think this is going with uh, the issue with these two women? Uh, what do you think is going to happen to Trump on this? It's my greatest hope that he will, in fact, have to um, have to testify about um, his own ethics, about his integrity. That there will that this will raise questions about um, not only what he's done in the past, but any of the present. Um, the present accusations about Trump's uh, legitimacy as a president and whether that's in terms of his character or whether that's in terms of uh, the legality or illegality of his actions. So that's my greatest hope. And um, 
then again, uh, what tomorrow's headlines may bring may uh, may push uh, Stormy Daniels and and others out of the out of the limelight, and we may see this not stick to Trump, just as everything else seems to have hmm. not stuck to Trump. So uh, we'll find out tomorrow. Megan Bowler has been with us, profession, uh, sorry, Professor, Department of Social Justice Education, Ontario Institute for the Studies in Education, University of Toronto. Megan, thank you for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. Sure thing. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.